Hello, everybody. It's Dan Woods of Early Adopter Research, and we're sitting here with Brian Contos, CISO of Veridin. He is here at RSA uh, for the conference, and we're doing our podcast uh, series here um, about three questions that we're asking everybody that should, the answers of which should be beneficial to CISOs. Um, before we start, I just wanted to let everybody know what perspective Brian brings to the table. Could you explain to us, uh, you know, ideally, you know, referencing the NIST framework of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, what Veridin actually does? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think NIST is actually a great framework to help describe it because what Veridin does is help you validate and rationalize your security controls across identify, prevent, detect, respond. So to make sure that what you've got is actually doing what you thought making sure those tools are optimized and providing value, and then once they are, make sure that they continue providing value in perpetuity. I see. So it's, it's essentially, um, one sense uh, you can look at uh, something like deception technology is to let you know, is everything working? And you use another uh, approach to make sure that you know everything is working. Yeah, our approach is basically, let's test your endpoint, your network, your cloud, your email security controls to make sure they're functioning properly. If they're not, let's help you prescriptively adjust those controls. And let's make sure we're getting value out of those and help pinpoint where areas where you need to maybe focus on to get your controls, you know, providing optimal value. And where are maybe some controls that you can just simply get rid of. I see. So it's sort of like a, a, a bedside monitor. Uh, for your cybersecurity. Yeah, just uh, it, it's a great way of getting sort of that sanity check and making sure that I'm getting value out of my security investment. Well, good. So these three questions are very germane to that sort of activity. The first one is about zero trust. Um, you know, I would really like to ask you, what does it mean in practice? Because zero trust se- seems to be another additive responsibility, and it, it doesn't really take anything away. But if you think of the idea of zero trust, it should take something away because the, the, the notion of zero trust is that the perimeter uh, is, is no longer the only way that we're going to protect. Uh, we're going to assume that everybody inside the perimeter uh, is also potentially harmful, yeah. and we're going to do a lot to make sure that we know about who they are and, and, and so that we can protect ourselves and find out if anybody's unauthorized. Yeah. But, but it seems so. It seems like you should be able to have less of a perimeter or, or less of something because you're making the zero trust assumption. But in practice, it seems it's, you don't. You just have more. Yeah. You know, Dan, zero trust is one of those things that I think academically just makes a lot of sense. Well, let me add this thing, and then I can remove all these other things, except for the fact that we're not removing all those other things because we don't really necessarily know if we can trust our zero trust infrastructure as we're first laying it out. Um, I think if you start looking at insider threats and lateral movement, and attackers that might already be inside your network, it absolutely positively makes sense. But I don't think we're willing to let go and probably shouldn't let go of some of our other controls, such as perimeter security, et cetera, uh, for the foreseeable future, because there does have to be some overlap. There does have to be a little bit more depth uh, to sort of fill in the holes that Zero Trust might have, not from an academic perspective, but from a deployment perspective and how you're leveraging it. Well, then what in practice does it really mean? Does it just mean better authentication of users? I mean, what if it's not really... You know, a new paradigm. Yeah. What what does it what does it practically really mean for people? You know, I think if we step back and we look, you know, years back we had network access control, right, and then we had user access control, and we had all these ways of breaking up specific assets and specific users and how they interact with our network. I think eventually you'll see that zero trust uh, uh, environment being embraced uh, at a larger scale 
But in order to do so, we need to be able to validate that that zero trust is actually doing what we expect it to do. I, when I talk to CISOs, there seems to be a bit of a trust factor, and it might have a little bit to do with understanding as to whether or not zero trust actually is or actually can provide the value that it promises. So I guess we would be in a new world if we had segmentation that allowed us to really think of everybody uh, as an individual inside a segment we dynamically created for them, then we then we could you know get rid of the the, the perimeter in a way. That, but but we really don't. We just don't have that. That's yet. the utopia that we aim for, right? Got it. Um, okay. The second question is about um, portfolio pruning. Uh, the the I have a research mission on early adopter research where it tries to deal with the idea of creating a, a balanced cybersecurity portfolio. Yeah. And what seems to be the case is that we get new functionality every show, we get new functionality every trend, but what have we gotten rid of? And you know, people make statements like antivirus is dead, yeah. but we still have plenty <laughs> of antivirus all over the place. Yeah. So um, you know, I have seen some CSOs mentioned that they're able to replace or reduce their reliance on you know, SIM, security uh, event information monitoring systems because they are using these new AI-powered anomaly uh, detection uh, systems to be able to get a view of every event on the network. Yeah. Um, and, and that seems to be a possible place for pruning. But you know, pruning of your portfolio, making it smaller, replacing older stuff with newer stuff seems to be a very hard to come by concept in cybersecurity. When do you think it's going to start happening and why hasn't it happened till now? Yeah, you know, I really think it has to do with rationalization. And to date, most organizations measure their security effectiveness predicated upon qualitative metrics instead of quantitative metrics. It's really hard to have evidence-based data uh, that's deterministic and saying what's working, what's not, here's a product that I should keep or tune, here's a product I should get rid of. Until we have that level of evidence, until we, until we can be more strategic about how we rationalize, prioritize, invest, and retire, I think we're always going to be in this sort of buzzword bingo type of uh, mentality. You know, you walk around to RSA these days, you know, I've been going to RSA since the late 90s, and there's always some term, whether it's your new IoT-enabled AI cloud infrastructure mobile thing, there's always some buzzword. And I think a lot of CISOs and organizations uh, are confused at to what adds value and what doesn't? Do I already have something like this? Does this replace what I have? Or is it just another new thing that might add some incremental level of value or placate an order with some new checkbox? Well, you know, uh, relating this to Veritin's functionality, I think that, you know, one way that you could actually uh, defend a pruning uh, program is by measuring the what everything is doing. And then if you find that a system is no longer catching anything, yeah. you can say, well, we no longer need it. And precisely, Dan. And in fact, we find a number of organizations will use Veritin's security instrumentation platform to help identify products that they can, in fact, get rid of so they can take that money, reinvest it in people and training and other products. Furthermore, we see people that when they're POCing various products, they'll want to use Veritin SIP to determine which vendors are actually doing what they say they're doing and how hard is it for me to configure this device to do it to what I need to do. Um, and, and those little basic things, I just want to make sure that my vendor's product is going to do what it says. I just want to make sure that a week from now, it's still working, 
and I want to make sure that all my security tools are as optimized as much as I possibly can so I'm getting true value and return on that. That's where security is moving, is that much more uh, deterministic sort of strategic perspective on security so you can align with business initiatives as opposed to let me just buy another buzzword and let me plug this box in and maybe it provides some value or not. Well, every cybersecurity system reports on what it finds. How do you actually f report about a larger scope so that you can understand whether it's effective? I don't quite understand yeah. how you can, uh, what the information halo surrounding it that yeah. allows you to evaluate the, the performance of a product that to, to find if it's doing what it says it's supposed yeah. to do. Yeah, so certainly you want to be able to validate our tools preventing certain types of things. Are they detecting? If it's going into a SIM or some type of other system, is that creating an event that a human can respond to? But after the technology bit, you're also looking at the processes and the people. Are the people effective? Are they following the right processes? Are those effective? Are they able to leverage those tools to their maximum efficiency? Do we need more training? Do we need more people? It starts answering a lot of questions around people and process and technology, as opposed to just myopically focusing on the tech. But really what it comes down to is you're looking at security as a system of systems and being able to evaluate overall security effectiveness instead of the old paradigm of pen testing or red teaming and seeing if I was able to get in. We want to see how effective is your overall security uh, structure. Got it. So you're not trying to say with your technology, oh, wait, I found uh, something that got through this, you know, uh, phishing prevention system or this, yep. this antivirus sort of system. You're not, you're not doing that. What you're doing is saying, look, if something was caught, was it followed up on? You know, was, was the information passed to the right person? Was something done about it? Is yeah. the, do you have actually a, a process flow that, that, that surrounds everything so that you know that effective action was taken? Really soup to nuts. Everything from testing if that firewall blocked it, or your email security system blocked it, or something detected it. We want to actually see from ground zero all the way up to was the process followed, the most efficient process, and were your people actually effective? So I, I think the days of evaluating technology without people and process are dead. So I think you really need to look at prevention, detection, response, all those NIST-based paradigms, and then basically evaluate it from there out to the people and process. Because the, again, the days of just looking at one specific security tool or one specific attack or one specific issue that you have in your architecture, it's, it's dead and gone. We have to look at the system of systems uh, in its entirety. Got it, so essentially you could look at this as basically an, uh, uh, a process monitor for your NIST framework. It's, it's a great way of putting it. In fact, we have a number of our customers that use this as a process monitor for, for NIST, for um, OWASP, for uh, SANS, and for MITRE ATT&CK. Okay. Now, I see a lot of people recommending... Ah, some coffee's being made. I see a lot of people recommending that... Um, you know, or, or offering, you know, cybersecurity that, that is based in the cloud. But if you look at most of the stuff people write checks for, it's for systems that are on-premise. Yeah. Um, in most other realms of enterprise software, you're moving more and more stuff to the cloud. How is the migration of cybersecurity technology from the current, you know, on-premise infrastructure to the cloud going to take place? Yeah, so I think as more enterprise solutions move into the cloud, prudence dictates that the security controls would then follow. Um, what I find that's interesting in the cloud, whether it's a 
next generation firewall or a web application firewall that's providing security controls for those systems is that in the cloud it's very easy to make mistakes. That is to say, it's very simple to have your critical database or web servers on the wrong side or the internet side of your, your firewalls and your security controls. A little $5 typing mistake can cause a, a multi-million dollar issue. So, I do think I'm seeing more migration. I think most organizations are a hybrid of on-prem and uh, in the cloud solutions. The problem that I'm seeing is most of these headline-grabbing issues as it relates to cloud and security are based on very, very simple mistakes that are made with no way to ensure that your security controls that you have in place have actually segmented your devices properly and they're actually operating effectively. And that's a problem in the cloud because, again, a few little keystrokes and now you're vulnerable as opposed to somebody plugging something in the wrong port, which arguably would be much harder to make that mistake. So what, you, what I guess you're taking this in a little bit of a different direction. You're saying that, that security will naturally move to the cloud to secure the cloud. To secure the and cloud. And so the idea of securing the cloud from a certain type of attacks, the cloud vendors will do. But then the whole idea of cloud assets is that they can be made available for sharing, they can be made available to whoever you want them to be. Yeah. And what you're saying is that there's a surface area over which you would put that, that can very easily be vulnerable to mistakes. It's the cloud security will monitor that level of access to see if you've been using the cloud properly. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think your cloud provider is going to provide a level of security, but I think in addition to that, like everything else, you need to validate and measure and hopefully improve on uh, what's happening in that structure. Uh, it's, uh, you know, people that embrace the cloud, it's almost emblematic of when people embrace MSSPs. Well, I don't have to worry about this anymore because somebody else is monitoring my network or they're managing it. What we very quickly found out was the moment you stop being involved with your security posture, regardless of where it's located, means that you're starting to introduce risk, and worst off, you have no idea where it's being introduced. Um, and so I think the, the answer to your question is, is that security will, your security will be completely in the cloud when your infrastructure is completely, completely in, in the, the cloud. cloud. That's right. Right, that's right, right. right, right. Yeah, and that's not to say that there won't be security solutions that are cloud-enabled, whether it's for email protection or DLP or other controls. I think that will, that will catch on. But to be very honest with you, I'm seeing most people that talk about cloud security are talking about security controls to go ahead and prevent, detect, and monitor activity that's happening to my devices that are cloud-based. Got it. Now, I have three bonus questions. Um, the first one would is about ops discipline. Would you think, how many CISO, CISOs would be better off if they took a bunch of their budget and instead of buying a new cybersecurity solution, focused on improving their operational discipline and their cybersecurity hygiene yeah. so that they were, you know, they could automate more of their configuration, they could automate, you know, monitoring and changes, they could do patching faster and, and evaluate the impact of patching better. They could do all the things that are about the process um, uh, better so that that they would never be vulnerable because of sloppiness. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe they didn't spend more on an extra component, but they ended up uh, spending more on using what they have better. Yeah. Uh, how many shops do you think would benefit from that trade-off? I, I think they would all benefit from some level of that. You know, automation is so key now. 
I mean, we're, you're, you're talking about the complexity of your environment, you're talking about uh, a, a small group of people that can actually uh, call, you can call your security analyst, there's a smaller pool to pull from. Um, and the fact of the matter is, with today's growing threat landscape, what you need to be able to do is leverage automation, leverage some of these new techniques, leverage some of this new technology in order to help improve. And I really think it comes down to measurement. You know, if you go to a CFO and you say, how much money do you have at the bank? And they say, I don't know, a million, 10 million? 20 million? That's not a very good answer. You go to security people and you always get these very sort of qualitative responses instead of quantitative evidence-based metrics. We need to have CISOs in the point where they actually understand with evidence-based metrics what's working, what's not, if the thing that was working last week is still working today. And the only way you can do that in a large complex environment is through robust automation that delivers the proof and evidence that you need. Um. The next question is about cybersecurity culture. Um, how can cybersecurity education and training be made a part of the everyday operations of a company? Because so often it seems like this foreign thing that you're somehow supposed to be good at. You're, you eat your prunes or, or you know, take your castor oil, do your good cybersecurity you know, training. It's not about the way you do business. You know, how, what do the people who really get this right do to make sure that people understand that cybersecurity thinking and cybersecurity training is not just uh, nice to have? Yeah, at two levels. I think at the highest level, it's all about making sure that the cybersecurity that you have is aligned with your business priorities. To say that your chief risk officer, your CIO, your CEO, and even your board understand how what security is doing is mapping to the business mission. So that's sort of a top-down approach. From a bottom-up pr approach, you know, uh, people have been trying to to crack that puzzle uh, for decades in terms of how do I make my people more cyber savvy. And probably one of the areas that I think has picked up in the last couple of years is just simple gamification. By using gamification, enterprise-level gamification, to help individuals uh, not only be more secure and learn how to be more secure, but give them some level of reward for doing so, that tends to get people a little bit more engaged and paying attention. End of the day, people like to click on links, people like to do certain things that we might consider unsavory, but it's, uh, it's just part of doing business. Now, if you've done the top-down portion correctly, hopefully you can compensate for the individuals that might not be operating with such a secure mindset. And then finally, I know a lot of people who are in CIO, CTO, CISO roles who've been asked by their board or their CSO to either consider or to buy cybersecurity insurance. And almost none of the people that I've talked to are eager to buy it because they understand that it doesn't offer uh, the kind of coverage that you could actually ever make a claim against. There are very limited amounts of things that it pays on and there are also many, many escape hatches uh, in all these, these programs. What would you advise uh, a, comp a CISO or CTO or CIO who is being forced to do this to do and argue against it? Or how could you actually make it useful? Uh, because uh, it seems like it's few and far between. Uh, where the cybersecurity insurance actually pays off in any meaningful way. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard a lot, Dan, of CSOs that have been afraid to pull the trigger when they make a claim because they don't know if it's the worst of it. It's like, do we do it now? Or are we going to find out more two weeks from now or two months from now when we really want to cash in on this? Because you can only do it once, right? So there's a lot of fear regarding the value that it brings. Um, I've also seen CSOs that have thrown their hands up and said, look, we're just not good at securing our environment. We keep on getting hit. 
we should just double down or quadruple down on our cybersecurity insurance investment, if you will. Now, I think that's a, a lazy approach, and I don't think it's very effective, and I don't think it instills a lot of uh, faith from your, uh, from your team. But, uh, you know, is cybersecurity insurance bad? No. Is it still in nascent days? Yes. You know, we've been talking about it for 20 plus years. There's a lot of people that leverage it, but I've yet to see a case where it's been proven to be an extremely valuable um, investment for most organizations to make. Well, this has been a really good, very efficient tour through my questions. I appreciate uh, getting to know you and having you uh, provide uh, to my listeners uh, an overview of Veriden and uh, the answers to your questions. Thank you very much. I hope you have a great show. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it.